think anybody would doubt that one of the most difficult things that a healthcare professional ever has to do is to tell a child that they or their parent has a life-threatening condition and might die. But what we know now is that these conversations are incredibly important because they set the trajectory for the child and the family going forward and has enormous impact on the child's well-being and the family functioning in general. But there are also conversations which can't be avoided or certainly shouldn't be avoided. They often are. Because we know that children are absolutely excellent observers of everything they, that goes on around them. Everybody who has children, or has had experience with children, which I'm sure is all of you, will know kids are very good at picking up things. They notice changes in mood, changes in behavior, and changes in facial expression, and they ask questions. And if they're not told, they put two and two together, they might get five rather than four, but it still means they're trying to work out what's going on. Just two little examples from our own experience. One from a low middle income context. It's a little um, boy in a ward in a sub-Saharan context. And the child opposite him had been very unwell and died one night. And he woke up in the morning to find the bed was empty. And he started asking every adult he could find, every doctor, every nurse, what happened to that child. And they all gave him different explanations. And at the end, one of the nurses noted what, that he kept asking everyone what was going on. And she said to him, you know, why are you asking these questions? And he said, because I need to know who's telling me the truth and who I can trust. So we also have another example, more in a high-income context, of a, of, a, of a girl who told us later on that she used to go and sleep outside her parents' bedroom every night. She knew something was seriously, seriously wrong. Nobody had told her, and she thought it was something about the safety of the house. She knew her parents were very distressed. And the week or two before her father died from a neurodegenerative condition, they told her and she worked it out. And she said that the years she'd spent, she could have been so helped because her fears were so misplaced and she sort of bore them alone through that time. So I think children do have to have an understanding of this. My own personal experience was, um, you don't need to do the math, was over three and a half decades ago when I was doing, as, as we were doing a study of, of um, palliative care in children. And we're doing a comparative study of the first hospice in the world, actually, which was based in Oxford. And my job as a junior researcher was to go and visit all these families in their homes. And I turned up, slightly inadvisedly, with my 25-page schedule to ask these families hundreds of questions. <laughs> and on page one, halfway through, was a question, kind of a warm-up question. You know, how did you find out about it? And how did you feel about the diagnosis that was told to you? And what I discovered was that almost every family was stuck in that moment. And those, the answer to that question lasted somewhere between half an hour and half a day. Because that was the moment that people remembered vividly. They remembered the curtain. They remembered the light. They remembered the voice. The trajectory of their lives changed. And it wasn't, it's not an uncommon experience. So we realized then how important it is. We weren't the only people, but how important it is for us to be able to talk to children and talk to families about these important things. And they're not something just for doctors. They're something for healthcare workers, um, for um, radiotherapists, all sorts of people. Every healthcare professional who works with children has to deal with this in some work at some point in their lives. We've done some work in Uganda. And I remember very clearly one of the healthcare professionals, she was a, um, originally a lay healthcare worker, working in a refugee on the um, northeastern Ugandan border. Uh, near South Sudan, packed refugee camp with South Sudanese refugees having escaped the war in Darfur and elsewhere. 
and saying, but the biggest thing she had was all these kids to deal with to help them to make sense of their experience. There'd been a lot of loss, there was a lot of illness, a lot of chaos. But what they needed was some explanation, some coherence as to what was going on about them, especially when it came to illness and impending loss. So even for her in those circumstances, it was as important as elsewhere. And these are not uncommon problems. So um, life-threatening conditions in children. Um, we know that 1.8 million children are infected with HIV now around the world, so it's a common condition. And more than 300,000 children develop cancer each year. So those are just two conditions. There are many other conditions, but those are the two that are mainly studied. So these are not uncommon conditions. And in low middle income contexts, and particularly in Africa, the survival from cancer in particular is actually very poor. It's something that's received very little, um, very little information, very little attention. But the survival for children uh, in cancer um, in high income countries can be up to 80% from childhood cancers, but in low middle income countries, um, it can be down to 10 or 20%. And it's just unconscionable that, that difference can occur. But nonetheless, it does emphasize how important the other issues around communication um, is, is important. And things like being able to advocate for your own care is an another component of all this. As far as parental, parental life-threatening conditions, even more important, uh, even more common, should I say. Um, again, um, HIV is, is very common uh, in parts of uh, sub-Saharan Africa, um, up to 25% uh, in, in areas which a child is living with a parent with HIV. Um, cancer is very common in, in a country which perhaps you've got the best statistics. 2.85 million children are living with a parent diagnosed with cancer. So these are actually really common conditions, and these are common experiences. And in a way, when it comes to adult conditions, many adult uh, clinicians somehow don't see the family or don't have any sense that the family is actually part of what they need to be dealing with. And it's understandable perhaps in the busy clinic, but it's, important, it's an important oversight that needs to be dealt with. Why is it so difficult? Why do these conversations um, not occur often? The first is we all want to protect children from distress, especially our own and especially healthcare professionals looking after someone. So you don't want to upset children, but actually not telling them, we've discovered, is not protecting them because they do have a very good sense of it. Healthcare professionals also don't want to get into this sort of thing. Often it's very distressing to tell a child, so you might avoid it on that basis. You have a very busy clinic, a very busy day. These are not simple e things to do. So that's another important issue. And of course, the curative ethos is very strong in medicine, still there. Often dealing with the fact that cure is no longer possible is often perceived as failure because we can't get somebody physically right. But, these, but we can still do an enormous amount through other kinds of communication, other kinds of care we can provide for people. Perhaps one of the biggest problems is a lack of understanding much more broadly amongst clinicians or healthcare professionals and the community in general about children's developmental understanding. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But children's understanding of loss separation, illness, illness causality, develops over time. And you need some understanding of that before you have these kinds of conversations. And perhaps, finally, very importantly, there are, is a substantial lack of available guidelines. Simple guidelines just take you step by step through these issues, because if those are available, then it becomes a much, much easier task. So why, why is it important to communicate to children about their own illness? First, 
it enables children to understand what's happening. They are much more likely to cooperate with procedures, they adhere to treatment, and we now know from a number of studies that can affect illness course. If children understand things, they participate things with the, con with the procedures, they take their medication, it's much easier. And they'll also allow children and families to advocate for their own needs. Children are often very good at expressing their voice about the kinds of things they do and don't want. And if they don't know what's wrong with them, it makes it more difficult. Or if they know something's wrong and people are not telling them, it often creates another barrier in the relationships. Why is it important to communicate about parents' illness? As I said, children are very good observers. They notice changes in parents' appearance and behaviours. And they're aware if a parent is taking medication or attending a clinical hospital. So not giving children information leads to them attempting to make sense of their own situation. And they rely on this, their perceptions to, make, to kind of construct a reality around them. And often that reality is not quite right. They don't get it quite right. And that can make, lead to a lot of difficulties. And they're left to cope by themselves. And it, as I said, it ultimately it affects their psychological and physical well-being. So this is just a brief summary. Um, I can send you, if you want, the, a, a, a much more detailed description of, of children's developing understanding. So in the first two years of life, children develop what we know as something called object permanence. They understand things as being permanent. They understand the perception of a caregiver or a parent and their face. And when they're not there, they appreciate that and they're distressed and they want the person to return. But between three and four, they start to understand that, that idea of death as something that's part of the natural course of things, but they do not understand the irreversibility. So it's very important, especially in the traumatic situations, to be quite clear with children if somebody has died. We know of so many circumstances where understandably parents in difficult circumstances or even friends or caregivers or healthcare professionals said to a small child, because you could almost not bear it yourself, don't worry, the person's gone away, they're in hospital, they'll come back another day, they'll come back at some point. And we know that that's one of the most difficult things for children to cope with, to the belief that someone's going to come back and they never come back, um, is something children often remember forever. At the age of five to six, children understand death as we would understand it, the complete finality of death, so that's an important watershed. I'll come back to the issue of magical thinking just in a moment because that's a very important watershed at the same time, around about four to seven years of age. But then getting on to, to adolescence um, is another important period. Children's executive function, adolescence executive function starts to mature as they arrive into adolescence. So their attentional capacity, attentional control, the whole decision-making process for adolescence is very different. And most importantly, peers start becoming much more important than family, or certainly at least as important than family, and the a great driver, not only emotionally, but biologically and behaviorally. So you, when there's serious illness in the family, or in the child herself, at the adolescent period, they're being drawn or back into the family fold, into family issues, when they're trying to get out of it and create a lot of issues. What is magical thinking? It's a term that's often used, and it doesn't mean magic, but what it means is, it is it's about children's belief that thoughts, events, or wishes can cause external events. In other words, we all occasionally, you know, you, you have an argument with somebody, and the next day you heard they had a car crash, and you think, did I cause that? And we know somewhere along the line that's not true. But for children between the age of four, five, six, seven, that's what they believe, and that's not, they think that really happened. And at the same time, they also are developing a conscience. So the idea that things happen 
they often end up feeling guilty for things that happen around them. So if someone becomes ill or they become ill, they often feel somehow they're implicated unless they have proper explanations. We looked after a little boy. Um, his mother had a, a chronic life-threatening condition. She was actually being managed quite well. And one day, he was, he, was, he was six or seven years of age, he decided he wasn't going to go to school. And he absolutely refused. And just happened to be the day she was going to the clinic. So after a big argument, they ultimately decided, okay, she would stay at home and spend the day with him at home, and he stayed at home. Unfortunately, she developed some complications of her condition, and three months later, she died. And we only discovered two, three years later that he was pretty sure that he was the cause of his mother's uh, death, that he had actually kept her at home, she'd not got her medication, and then she had then slowly gone downhill. Because in the argument, she said, well, you know, I need my medication, I need to get it. And what he didn't realize was quite understandably, she didn't say, well, the next day she went and got it. And if a simple explanation had been present there, it would have been a lot easier for them. So just um, a bit about what children understand about illness and the relationship between illness, their body function and body um, uh, um, structure. At about 7 to 11, they start to understand some of these relationships, but they're pretty concrete. So children will understand things like your hair falling out or losing weight because you're ill. But they won't understand side effects. They don't understand the internalization or the internal functioning of the body. So you, if you're talking to children up to about 11, you have to keep it pretty simple and pretty concrete. But beyond, beyond 11, you can make it more, more concrete, more um, abstract than that. So the effects of communication on children, I've already said, at least we now know leads to lower anxiety. Delayed disclosure is associated with feelings of anger and betrayal. It helps trust and, and, and enhances adherence. And lack of disclosure, especially in the HIV context, often, relate, often ends up with poor understanding of the risks of unprotected sex. Unfortunately, it turns out that children of parents who are HIV positive or HIV negative themselves are probably at greatest risk of developing HIV. And it's a complicated story, but we can come back to that. Interesting, a large study in Egypt, which is of children who had, had cancer and their parents, found that the communication was very central to the way in which children adhered and to the way in which they functioned more generally. I thought I'd just mention this one Chinese study because there are very few studies like this in China, but it's an interesting study around HIV. And it was a complicated study. I won't get into the ethics of it, but they did it quite nicely. But they interviewed 626 children and adolescents whose parents had HIV, and they're trying to establish, did they know that their parents had HIV? And and the vast majority of them had not been told by their parents or the caregivers, not been told, told formally that their parents had HIV. But of those 60% who hadn't been told, 80% knew. In one way or another, they gleaned it. This was even a Chinese context where you perhaps, where this kind of information was not flowing very easily. So they worked something out. So um, several years ago, the Lancet Journal um, commissioned us to produce a series which tried to pull some of this together. And what they wanted us to do was to review all the literature, which um, are great, I'm grateful to them for being very patient for this venture, which we thought would take six months and took three years. Um, but it was really a very wide literature on all the related issues. Um, and then pull it together and develop a workshop and develop guidelines. Because there was really a dearth of guidelines, there's very limited training, and there are very few opportunities for ongoing supervision. Yet this is such a common experience. And we've all 
well, I wouldn't say all, but most of us at some point been there in terms of loss of a relative, loss of, and where children are involved at some point. We also, we also put together a workshop of international experts from kind of around the world who had one meeting just to sort of lay out the groundwork and then they worked with us through an iterative process around how you would develop the guidelines based on the evidence but also based on good clinical common sense. And we had people really from Mass, from mass General to people who worked in refugee camps. And this is just briefly um, the series and I, have, I can send you a set of the um, papers um, and it came with, with an editorial and I think they, they were very struck by how, how little was known about it um, more widely, yet there was actually a lot of information there which could be used to kind of develop these guidelines, which were actually not rocket science. These are not things that are complicated, complicated scientific issues, but they're clear, and many of them are actually quite simple. So just to give you a few examples of the kinds of simple, simple things, I won't go into any detail that the guidelines came and there were pages and pages of it, but things, you know, advice as to kind of wording that could be used. But simple things that so many families have said, if you use their names and their children's names, it is so helpful. In a sense, you're in some kind of gigantic conveyor belt, speaking to anonymous healthcare professionals, but when their names are used, it makes such a difference. So I always say to the medical students, just look in the notes. If you can't remember the names of the siblings, just write it down the back of your hand on a piece of paper. Because in the stressful moment, you might forget, but it makes such a difference um, to be able to use the name. Instead of saying um, his or her brother and not remembering the name. Um, issues around privacy, but things like when you mention, give the name of the condition, we all feel very anxious. It's a difficult moment, you say, your child's got retinoblastoma or something like that. And that moment you've, is such a tense moment and the, the tendency of healthcare professionals is just to rush on because you just don't want to wait there. But you need to wait for a moment and just let the parents and or the child, ever you're speaking to, absorb that moment and say, do you know what that is? And just give them a moment because their, their minds will, be, will just be racing as to what that means. Will they not be playing with their friends? Will they not go to a party? What can't they do? What will be happening? All the things that will be preoccupying their mind and they may not even be listening to you. And they may also not know. You might think they know what the condition is, but they don't. So it's just giving them a moment and then asking them a bit about it, asking them what they understand, and then having to follow their cues. So we've got quite a lot of details about how you take all that forward, but two things that parents always said at the very end and children said at the end. The one is, you won't be alone. There'll always someone to support you through this. Because I think families think you're getting to this stage, you're kind of out there by yourself. And then one thing to help them about not being alone, which is maybe even just a telephone number that you can communicate because so just to mention, I just give you just mention of a, a study we did um, in uh, northeastern South, South Africa um, around how you would talk to children about HIV. So HIV, as many people would know, is still an enormous issue. 36.7 million around the world have HIV AIDS. Um, 1.8 million individuals worldwide newly infected in, HIV, in 2016 and the highest rates in young women, and especially young women of childbearing age. But the power of antiretrovirals means that almost all of, very few of these women's children are now infected. Prior to antiretroviral medication, the transmission rate was 40%, 35 to 40% of children were uh, it was transmitted to HIV in utero or during breastfeeding. Now, 1%, 1.5%, 1.5%. 
um, even in studies in places like Zambia, South Africa, uh, and it's less than 1% um, as a John Rattler for or the mass gen. So, but what it means is there's an enormous cadre of children who are growing up in families where a parent is HIV, and the communication to those children is so, so critical. And it's very hard for these families. You can just imagine how hard it is to think, how am I going to do it, especially you're living in sm small circumstances. You've got to take your, you take your own medication every single day and religiously. Um, if, someone, if your child has a cut or you have a cut, you've got to be very careful about how the you know, clearing out of blood, all these different <coughs> things that need to be done. And you're totally preoccupied, and a lot of parents don't want to talk to their children about it. But it is enormously helpful that parents find once the children know, once it can be open, once they can talk about their medication. There's a lot of planning that can be done. We developed something called it was Amagugu, which is a, a it was a family-based intervention where we used where we trained, and it was a big team. So I'll, I'll acknowledge, um, come back to a moment, big group of us who worked this one out. It was a simple six session by women who were called lay healthcare workers. So these are people who had no professional qualification, but had got to the equivalent of a kind of what we might call a GCSE, uh, and who worked with the families in their homes around talking to the children around HIV. A couple of key issues was to actually work with the parents about their own feelings first, because the feeling that most of these mothers and the fathers had about how you would talk to a child and what the questions would be meant they could almost not cope. So you needed at least one session, debriefing session if you want to call it, they could talk about, so what will you do if they say, will you die? And helping them with the kinds of questions. And also the biggest fear for most parents was, how did you get it? So giving them simple, uncontentious, true, not every single bit of the truth, <laughs> <laughs> experiences of how you may have got it. Because that's what kids want to know. You got it? Am I going to get it? How do you get it? But it is also important in the end for children to do have the sexual education because of the risks that these kids... Uh, and the, in, the, in the studies, a couple of studies in the Congo, which show quite clearly that adolescents and, young, and even younger children really wanted to know and felt the importance that they could protect themselves in due course. Mm -hmm. So it was a five-session thing. We ran, it was a big randomised controlled trial. Um, which we compared it to a sort of a standard of care, which has been enhanced standard of care. Um, and I don't want you to worry too much about this rather unpleasant looking uh, diagram, <laughs> but basically it's just the sense that what happens to people at the top left-hand corner is you, the distress, fear and isolation leads to what we might call avoidant coping. You don't talk to your kids about things. The easiest, thing, easiest way to deal with stress is just not to talk to them. And the non-disclosure often leads to strains in the relationship and then avoidance of sex education. I won't go to the rest, but it's this, what we call avoidant coping, which so many people in stress, we all deal with at some point, but helping someone to understand that and to find ways of dealing with it in very simple terms is important. The results were, were relatively positive. We showed it wasn't that difficult to help people disclose. Some of them didn't use the word HIV. They used the word virus. So we call that <coughs> partial disclosure. But not only did they disclose more to the child uh, who, were, who was involved in the study, but they also tend to disclose to the other kids. We worked to things like um, helping take the child to a clinic visit so they'd be familiarised themselves with the clinic so it wasn't this kind of big thing and we help the clinics to be a bit friendly to the kids, not a bit friendly to kind of be welcoming because I don't know if you've been to, you know, been to clinics in, in the, almost anywhere but especially in, 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 in um, areas where socioeconomic uh, um, relative disadvantage, the clinics are massively busy and they most, you feel, just be overwhelmed by, by all the people and all the rushing about so 
helping the kids to feel that this is a place they could go, it's a place they know their parents are being looked after. Discussing a bit of a care plan, if a, if a kid goes to hospital, mother, sorry, mother goes to hospital, the father goes to hospital, who would look after them, and appointing a guardian. Even for short periods of time, the kids could say who they wanted to, because we know that what often happens to these kids, especially in big sub ships, they get split up amongst other, lots of other families. Whereas if this is worked out and understood in advance, it can make a big difference. We also found that this led to um, quite a lot of improvement in parent-child relationships. So in some, I think what we're trying to do here is make what we might call impossible conversations a bit possible. And if I go back to the little girl who slept just outside her mother's and her father's bedroom and whose father had a, a, a neurodegenerative condition, what we could have helped her with, or what her healthcare professional could have helped her with, is her own feeling, her, her own understanding, and the lack of isolation in this family. We couldn't have changed the trajectory of the con father's condition that was something that no one could change but what they could do was to help the family with this and certainly to help this young girl with her isolation thank you